This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Pollock Theater. I'm your host, Matt Ryan, the Pollock Theater Director. Uh, script to Screening Series examines the screenplay from the perspective of the writers, directors, actors, and producers. Uh, this is our sec- fourth season and our second episode. So we're so excited to be celebrating this awesome film, The Theory of Everything. So please welcome to the Apollo Theater stage, screenwriter producer Anthony McCartan, and UCSB Gaucho producer Lisa Bruce. Don't they have midterms? They do it. This is actually midterm week for, uh, and you can see we still have a pretty good crowd. They're coming out for midterm. Uh, so Lisa, there was a lot of tears tonight. Going back to the early production part of the process, can you tell us what struck you emotionally about this story? What grabbed you? Um, it's sort of easy. In, it, as a woman, you don't read a lot of scripts where the female character is as strong as the male character, or as complicated, or as messy. Um, and I think that Anthony really brought that forth. And, and Jane's such a formidable character. Stephen's the character that everybody knows, obviously. Publicly, we all know him as one thing, and obviously you see a different side in this movie, but... It's, it was really fun to sort of delve into the domestic side of this world and see how much uh, Jane and often domestic carers in the world are not the most sexy characters to bring forth in cinema. So I thought it was really wonderful how it was balanced and it was a really exciting thing to tell because of that. So Anthony, same question. What drew you to the story emotionally that made you like, I've got to write this script? <clears throat> um, it was initially Stephen um, in 1988. He published his groundbreaking book, A Brief History of Time, and uh, I and 10 million others ran out and bought it. Um, not so many of us finished it. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it goes down in history as one of the great unread books. Uh, certainly, um, there was certain, there's a point where comprehension fails, but what doesn't fail is a sense of awe that, um, that he is awakening that part of the brain that is, that is slumbering, that ought to be asking the biggest questions such as nothing less than, you know, what is the nature of time? Um, how did the universe begin? How, did, how will it end? And what should we do in the meantime? And then there's the whole thing of Stephen Hawking himself, this incredible figure who's breaking this intergalactic news from a wheelchair who can't move a muscle in his body, um, but a super-functioning brain, and speaking through a computer like, you know, like Hal in 2001 or, you know, and, and I thought someone's going to make a, a movie about this guy one day, never thinking I'd have a role to play. And uh, it was actually in 2004, that was the real catalyzing moment for me when I read Jane Hawking's autobiography. And when I read that, everything I thought I knew about Stephen Hawking was displaced by everything I didn't know. And this was a unique emotional insight into his private life. This incredible love story, um, very much one of a kind, unprecedented in some ways, um, challenging, heartbreaking, triumphant. And I thought, wow, if I could get the rights to that book and marry it with the public world of what we know of Stephen and his public story, you know, we'd really have something special. So this, this was the, the moment where I decided to get on a train. And become a stalker. <laughs> I became a stalker. 
um, friendly stalker, but a stalker no less. And I went down to see Jane Hawking. She was living in Cambridge, um, where she and Stephen both still reside. Um, they were divorced by then. And uh, I went up to her door and knocked on her door, presented myself basically as a stranger, and said, um, don't be afraid. Um, uh, I come in peace. Uh, I have this concept for a movie uh, based on your book, Would You Let Me In? And with her characteristic graciousness, she allowed me to come in. She plied me with uh, cucumber sandwiches and little glasses of sherry. And, uh, and, I, and I turned on all the charm I possess, um, determined to not leave without um, uh, her giving me the rights to her book. And as a measure of my charm, I can tell you it took eight years for her, <laughs> for her to give me uh, the rights to this book. But it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a trust-building uh, exercise. I worked on the script. I showed her drafts of the script. Um, after five years, um, I was ably joined by Lisa here, um, and it was nice to have someone in the trenches with me for the last, what, three years, four years of that journey. Um, and a day finally arrived when Jane had sufficient uh, confidence in us, in the team, and in the script to take out a pen and write her name on an option agreement. And this was extremely So you were satisfying. working for free, technically, until she signed... The waiver. Well, not only that, it, it wasn't just working for free. It was that the whole thing was uninsured. I had no certainty that for all the work I'd done and all the all the you know the journey I'd gone on, and that Lisa joined me in that leap of faith, that we would ever get the rights. Um, it was we just we called it sweat equity. Uh, <laughs> it was just on a wing and a prayer for for years, um, but it came good. So, Lisa, so, just, so the biggest fear for you was not being able to make the movie, like when you came as producer. Yeah, like, what if we can't this, do this wonderful piece? Yeah, and you, you, I think it is helpful to have a partner because you do sort of call each other in those moments of desperation when you just want to quit or give it up. I used to say to Anthony, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have this amazing writing sample. That <laughs> 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 <I> never totally... <laughs> it wasn't 100% he, yeah. consoling. No. <clears throat> no. Uh, it's interesting because my first question is really about Jane. I mean, I find I, you know I found her character so fascinating because usually if you know someone's married and someone grows ill, the husband or spouse or wife will take care of them. Hmm. She was just dating him. It was like, in the, and she chose love over leaving him. Hmm. Is that as, as a writer for you something like this a great character jumping off point where you can kind of get yeah, her? For sure. You know, that's something where you, you ran with that kind of theory that she's it was special. It was remarkable. I think it was, it's part of her personality. Um, she loved the guy and just didn't see his, a short life as, as, the, as a big enough reason not to marry this guy. I think she also had a sense of mission. She was looking for a purpose in life. Uh, and she also had, a, I think, her Christian beliefs um, fueled her in that. I think she thought, this is what I should do. This is... This is what I believe in. And, and so, she, you know, for all those reasons, um, she did something really remarkable. And it, 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 in story terms, it's remarkable. Um, a lot of people would run away from that challenge. Like he says to her, you don't know how bad this is going to become. This is going to affect everything. And it's not going to be a, a, you know, a fight. It's going to be a defeat. And you're going to preside over a defeat. 
And, but everyone underestimated her because she was physically small, quietly spoken, and this is one of the tensions in the script is people constantly underestimating her and she's constantly upsetting those, those expectations. Yeah, when we would go around to talk about the script early on, no one seemed to know anything about Stephen's domestic life. A lot of people think he's American because of the voice. Um, many people think he's always been in the chair. They think he's always been crippled from birth. And very few people ever knew that they had three children together. And a lot of women say, it's one thing to have one child in that situation, or two, but then they have three children. Because she's got so much burden on her, and then she decides to sort of keep going on with this. <clears throat> because apparently erections are involuntary muscles. <laughs> one of the good humor touches in the movie. Is like a, right. uh, with his best friend mentioning the... Uh, that explains a lot about men. Right. <laughs> the, uh, so so when, you're, but when you're balancing, so you had to balance scenes where she was struggling taking care of She loved him, mm-hmm. but she also struggled with taking care of him and always wanted to be free. Mm-hmm. Did you have to worry about the balance when you're creating the script just to make sure we didn't lose sympathy for her? But was that a juggling act? Or? She was, I mean, she was a forerunner in, in similar ways to the, that he was. He was groundbreaking in scientific world. But she was growing up in 1950s England where it was very much an expectation that a woman would be a wife and mother and not much more than that. And she had her, her time that she wanted to devote her career almost completely taken over by demands. And, and I think the film tries to show that, that she's just with the leftover bits around the edges. She's trying to sit her exams, do her work and pursue her own intellectual life. But from, from much of, of those early years, that was completely impossible. And I like the juxtaposition between her taking care of him and the baby at the same time, like running back and forth, yeah. almost like she had twins. Yeah. Like, and that struggle was fascinating, but yeah. she handled it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Grace. Yeah. Yeah, she used to, they, they, they had in the first years a little uh, mini. I, I don't know if you know what a mini is, it's, it's what it sounds like. It's a very small car. And um, they used, she used to get, have to get Stephen in the car, carry him physically in there, and three kids and all their stuff, and go on holiday. And, and put the chair on. And then wheelchair on the top and so <clears> forth. <throat> and um, yeah, we had, actually, we, in one of the early drafts of the script, we had that scene. Um, um, we actually put all the things they would need for a holiday, plus all the children and, and him, and, and this tiny little car. And how would she get it all in? Um, we didn't end up shooting it. But it took too long. Yeah. <laughs> you did have that great line with his best friend when she carried him up the stairs. Yeah. How does she handle this? Because he yeah. was struggling. He was a little yeah. drunk, though, right? Well, that was actually that, <laughs> that was a funny moment in the, in the, in the shooting. That's a little behind-the-scenes story. Is, um, we had found this location, and the script required him to carry a guy, uh, you know, he, the guy, his friend, carrying Stephen up the stairs. And, James, and the art and, department made the statue, obviously, of the Queen Elizabeth. Right? Yeah. And James came over and said, uh, just so you know, we're not going to have uh, the actor carry Stephen up the stairs. Uh, Eddie's too, too heavy, um, and we probably have to do this many times. So we're just going to have the whole scene at the bottom of the stairs. And I went, <laughs> really? Um, oh, I think that will, don't you think that will compromise the scene? And he said, yeah, it's not my, my, my wish, but you know, we just simply can't get um, Charlie Cox, who played Brian, to, to just do that over repeatedly. And I said, well... Harry Lloyd. Harry, it was Harry yeah. Lloyd. And, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, to, to, um, to the director's credit, he, I asked him, look, would you do one take with him? Because I have a feeling if you turn a camera on an actor, 
what they're capable of before you turn the, the camera on <laughs> and, what, and what they're capable of after is two different things. And, uh, and so they started running and he did the first take. I think he did 12 takes of carrying this guy up and it was really superhuman because Eddie is actually, although he looks small, he's actually in a full-grown guy. And, yeah. <laughs> but the comedy, obviously, because he's yeah. looking down at him saying, does yeah. everything work? It just no, wouldn't it have was, worked if they were sort of at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, the best friend was a great scene. His, I loved his best friend, and we, if we lose that, you kind of lose that whole yeah. relationship that was really established quickly and well yeah. between the two of them. Anybody Game of Thrones? So that <laughs> guy who plays the best friend is the dragon mother's brother. Really? Yes. The Golden Throne guy? Yes, in the beginning with the molten <laughs> stuff poured up. Oh my God. We'd been on the movie for like three days and I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, are you? And then I went off and he was like, yeah. Because you hate him so Sorry. much in Game of Thrones. Sorry for people who don't watch Game of Thrones, but that's like a. You're like, oh my God. So you weren't going to add a scene you're in there. He's such a good actor. No, it's just such a totally different. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little about Felicity Jones. So, Lisa, what did you see in her in, in casting? Well, you know what was really fun about this process for people in this room? I mean, you can sort of have, can be two people in a room dealing with a script forever. And the reason we were, it was just Anthony and I forever in cafes was because since we didn't have the rights, we didn't have anything to sell. So you spend a lot of time talking about cast and who do you want as a director? And so we had all these you know lists, but... Always for the two leads, the list was very short because we needed them to be young enough and we definitely wanted them to be British and um, we wanted sort of the, a level of just for, for Eddie as a particular, he, his face is somewhat similar to Stephen's, so he was perfect in that regard, plus he had the chops. And then also for Jane, you needed somebody that could match if it was going to be Eddie. And Felicity was always on a list for us. And I saw her in a movie, I think you had also seen her in Like Crazy, which is a small independent movie. Drake Dormus does it. And it's, it's all, it wasn't really fully scripted and they do a lot of improv. And she has this really delicate quality, but she also has this, uh, she's quite formidable in moments. And she just, uh, it was so obvious when they read together because they have this instant chemistry. And I think that's the one thing we sort of feel incredibly lucky about because you can overthink casting and have all these ideas but then you really the one thing I think it's very hard to do is to cast the chemistry that's the one thing you really have trouble doing if you're a director or a casting director or producers because you don't really know until they get together and luckily they had both trained under um, a guy Michael Grandage in theater so they had similar approaches and they also knew each other for years in theater, and so they had a very good respect for each other and, and quite really loved each other. So they were able to bring this chemistry quite magically early on. So as soon as we saw them read together, I think we were all kind of like, of course. And how about you, anything that she did that surprised you? Like how she brought your scripted character to life? Yeah, they, they, I mean, part of the whole architecture of the script is that they start off very verbal and physical and end up, in Stephen's case, completely in, in, inert uh, physically. And um, they're both relegated to very, very few words. And I knew that would place a big strain on the actors. Well, not a strain, but ask a lot of them. Because they're going to have to tell the story um, expressively, not with words, but with their eyes. In Eddie's case, eyebrow acting. He should get an Oscar for eyebrow acting. (laughs) I mean, just what he does with the glasses and looking over it and stuff. He had to create a whole repertoire of looks to tell the story. 
And, and just consistently, they fueled those silences with you could see the transition of one pro- thought process to another and everything. But just stunning. And they were yeah. both really daunted by him. Eddie was really uh, somewhat campaigned for the role, but then as soon as he... I mean, he'll tell the story as soon as he sort of gets the phone call and James, our director, <clears throat> calls him to say, OK, we're going we're gonna to go with you. He said, typically, when you get a role as an actor, you have like a good week where you're just in euphoria, and then you start to go, oh, no, I have to do this. And he said it la- the euphoria lasted for about 30 seconds, and then he was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. And one time I was on set, and somebody, an agent was on set, and they were going, <clears throat> somebody's over here going, well, it's a life-defining role. I mean, this is a career maker, this role. And Eddie, walking by, he came over to me, he goes, is there any way you get people to not say things like that (laughs) when I'm walking by? Because it was just so much weight to play this guy and that kind of arc, you know, it was quite a big... And that was, I mean, it was very confining. He's trapped in a chair. I mean, he just has Mm. no way of... Is that difficult to write, too, though? Because you have to also convey emotion in the script without the actor tool dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's certain times in there where you know I thought what can he do is he's breaking up with his wife he wants to hold his wife and she's walked across the room while he's got forward he can still hit forward on his wheelchair (laughs) that's all he can do so he goes and bumps her you know um, which is quite an articulate thing to do in that context you know just his little progress across the room so I had to find a different vocabulary um, and that was one of the challenges, but one of the reasons why I really wanted to do the thing from the beginning, because I thought if you could show domestic conflicts where one half of the conflict can't really communicate, and all relationships are boiled down to communication, well, what if you remove the ability of one person to communicate? How do you have a functional relationship? It'd be like meeting someone from a foreign country, and maybe you've done this, and you have a spark or something, but they don't speak your language, you don't speak them. This happened to me once when I was touring in Italy. I met this wonderful girl. She spoke Italian, no English. I had English, no Italian. But we both knew the lyrics of Hotel California. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd go, on a dark desert highway. And he'd say, cool wind in my ear. And the whole night was just this this exchange. Eventually you kiss and then it's fine. Ah, no, yeah. it was a disaster. We, we forgot the lyrics at a certain point, and we didn't know the second verse, and it was over. Yeah. Uh, let's talk some specific scenes. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, when students and I watched the movie together yesterday, was the, the ball, where yeah, the ball. he says, I can't dance, I don't dance, and then asks her to dance at the end of the fireworks. They fall in love there. How important was that developing? How hard was that scene to develop? Because that is the start of everything for me. Yeah, and that actually is one of their very early dates was a Mayball. Mm. No, in because we're covering twenty-seven years, you couldn't have four scenes of them falling in love. Now, this is one of the challenges of the thing. I had to have the, the, the their marriage break up within one scene. There's this, the breakup scene, for example, is starts with them celebrating a moment of marital unity and triumph when she, he basically concedes the possibility, at least of God. By the end of the scene, they're no longer husband and wife. It's all in one scene. Um, the Mayball scene is they arrive as almost strangers and they end, um, they're going to spend their life together. Um, so there's, there's a sort of world in a grain of sandness about a lot of the scenes. They had to be microcosms of a whole phase in, in our lives. Um, and there's a whole lot of those units, dramatic units, that are 
just sort of interlocked. The thing is, if you misfire in that scene, the fall, everything falls apart. Dramatically. Honestly, honestly the, the, it's almost like dominoes. And if you took one of them out, you know, the, the next one won't work. So they all had to work. They all had to somehow complement each other and, and kick on to the next one. So that when, you know, he says, uh, I'm dying, you know, in two years, we really believe that she does love him. Mm-hmm. You have to really have felt that, that she had fallen in love with him. Yeah. yeah. And as a producer, can you separate the emotional <laughs> impact of the scene and, or your producer brain saying, I've got to pay for fireworks, night crew, union, <laughs> <laughs> how are we going to do this? <laughs> you know, do you have to... You know, I, this was a, a good experience uh, because we had the right amount of money, really. A working Title was a great company. The other two producers that you see listed there, the, they're heads of the company and... Uh, They've made so many movies, and they knew the value of the story. And we, we were in one of those rare situations where we weren't scrimping. We did end up cutting some stuff, actually, that was in, in the script in order to buy ourselves a little more time. Uh, I think the biggest struggle for us in terms of the money was just having enough time and not having to shoot six-day weeks. That was a real... The initial budget and schedule was... Six, every other week was a six-day week, and because of what Eddie has to be doing... It's even hard to tell when you watch it, but mm. he's not just you know in a contorted position. He's doing things where some of his muscles are limp and some of his muscles are stiff uh, at different stages in the disease, and he tracked all that. And he had to sort of figure it out because Stephen sort of stopped going to doctors at some point, and so he had to figure it out from pictures and went to a specialist. So he's doing all sorts of contortion with his body, so at the end of each take, he would just literally like kind of Slump almost break or, down yeah. in exhaustion. So... We, we were struggling more on the money front. It wasn't just, is there enough money for fireworks or that stuff? It was more about, um, uh, it was really more about having the time. So we, we were able to, ended up shooting for 48 days, which is quite a decent schedule in today's uh, market. And that's, that was really the, the worry. So we weren't, we weren't really battling day in, day out with that. So it really, we, we got to sort of stay with the emotion. It's interesting because I never thought, I didn't think of it, the role was physically demanding. Because you think yeah. he's in a chair, it would be easy. But no, it, he does have to do that the whole entire movie. Yeah. He yeah. worked with a, a, a dance, uh, a dancer. She's actually a movement coach. So that her job before this was to figure out the, the, uh, a unique movement for all the zombies in uh, War of Z or War Wars. How do you say that? <laughs> War Z. Yeah. And so it was like, okay. And so I remember at certain points you start to treat everybody as though they're an expert, you know, because that's what we need them to be. And so, you know, you're like on day five or something, and I'm having conversations with their going, okay, so at this point in the ALS, you know, he would be this or something. And she would go, you know, I'm figuring this out as we go. I mean, she wasn't like an ALS expert. So it was this whole, um, and he, what he had to do was train his body over a four-month period so he could be in these incredibly contorted positions, but have the muscle strength to hold it. Because, you know, you do five or six takes of something. And he's in all different positions because of the way Upper neuron, but the and goal, lower neuron. The ultimate goal for, for Eddie and for Felicity, but more Eddie, was was to work out all that physical stuff in rehearsal and train that, so that when you're on set, you can forget about it, yeah. so that it's just playing the emotion, and um, you know, because for Stephen, he doesn't really care about his disability, or it doesn't seem to. He's, he's it's the least interesting thing to him. It's about what's out there, what's around the corner, what's in the next galaxy. He's really just mentally forward-looking. Which makes him very interesting as a human being, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about the scene, uh, the doctorate scene. It's one of my favorite scenes where he gets the doctorate, and then immediately you get the triumph. And we talked about you just mentioned triumph, mm-hmm. and then 
Five seconds later, he can't even crawl up the stairs to see his son. Mm. How do you balance juxtaposition in those kind of things where you have to do the triumph versus the reality? Um, by design. I mean, just turning a scene which starts out triumphant and then turning it was certainly part of the, of the, the whole idea that everybody is using their hands and he starts to just feel tragically moved by the fact that I can't do that stuff anymore and I've lost all that. So his mood of celebration just ebbs away. He doesn't want to ruin everyone else's evening and he, he absents himself and then has to then have this heartbreaking struggle up the stairs. I feel like that was the scene that hit me most emotionally. It just something about seeing his son looking down. Yeah. Grabbed me, that was kind of... Yeah. It yeah, it's one of those things when you're writing. You know, when I remember writing that scene, I, there was no son there. Um, and at some point, I don't know why. I mean, I've got three sons. Maybe it's because I'm a father myself. I just thought, what would it do if you would add a son looking at him struggling? You know? Um, and, and it's interesting to... And, and it gave it so much more, I don't know, so much more pathos that, he's, that he starts thinking of his son and he says, you know, it's okay, Robert, it's okay. As he's trying to put that really is more tragic than just him on his own. Yeah. It also mirrors that he's like becoming and soon he's like going to be like an infant in terms right. of his physicality. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, it was interesting. One of my students and I were, were talking about this. Uh, she read on the internet the uh, you know that they weren't together and she was worried about that. How's that going to play out in the movie? But how, you guys handled it really well, where it was totally believable. You didn't feel betrayal. Uh, so let's talk about the tent scene where she mm. goes to the tent at the same time. Mm. How did you balance that? Were you a little concerned, both of you, about, uh-oh, will we lose sympathy for her because of that? Or Yeah, totally you? worried about that. You know, in the writing and in the performance and every aspect of production, it was keep, we were very attuned to the idea that this is a very unusual journey you're going to take an audience on. And, you know, there's a reason why scripts tend to be quite conventional because that we know they work. We didn't know that we would take an audience on this journey and have sympathy for Jane through all the decisions she makes. Because there's a lot of moral ambiguity, yeah, for sure. So, you know, the actors became great guardians of their character and they would, they would sort of say, I think I should sit like this, but I, I'm not going to gesture. I'm gonna, that might lose audience sympathy and I'll stay like this. And, and everyone was aware of that. And we, we found our way through that. It really, I mean, that, that tent scene, she goes to the tent and stuff. We kind of knew that, would, that was all we needed. But um, we shot more. I mean, that's what you would typically uh, do. I mean, she does unzip it, and they do sh- make out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, to me, it's a lost art of subtext. Yeah. Not, you don't have to show, because everybody in the audience, I'm assuming everybody in the audience knew what was going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all know what's going on. We don't need to see it, but we understand her. And that she was, needed batteries for her flashlight. Yeah. That's why she was going <laughs> That was the first draft. You guys missed that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Lisa, were you concerned about that? How the relationship, especially when you know him with the nurse, that would throw off you know the audience or something? Yeah, I mean, also, and, and actors do sort of take license. I mean, the reason I bring up that they made out was that wasn't really scripted. You know, when they sort of got together and the thing, the zipper came open and the storm clouds were coming in and we were about to be rained on, they just decided to make out, which is fine. So then you have that option in the editing room, but that, that happened a few times where they would sort of go beyond the boundaries of it. So you were always, because that was a natural instinct for those two characters, they naturally would want to do that. Um, but I think because of Anthony's writing, you sort of always knew where the boundary was and, and it, it, we, we ended up actually hitting most of the boundaries that were in the original script, I think. Hmm. But, and also because 
it's quite tricky because there's Elaine that's going to end up in Stephen's life, but also Jonathan, and Jonathan's going to stay in the film for a longer period. And yeah, it was really that's a really a, a tight wire to walk, I think. And I, I think Anthony said it really well when he said the actors were quite good guardians. They were. Charlie Cox was very sensitive to it, and what, what level could it, it be pushed a little too far? There's little montage bits where they're like washing dishes and they sort of glance at each other. Those are bits that we shot to sort of make sure there was some element of it, but there wasn't enough that you would mm. be going over the edge. It was, uh, and it, we talked a little about the breakup scene because that was when he mentions God. I was feeling like the audience. I felt I felt so glad. I was like, wow. <laughs> and then he kind of took it away. <laughs> I'm leaving. However, however, I'm going to yeah. America with yeah. with her. So was that kind of the you, you had to compress the breakup into one scene? No, no. It was always in plan to be like that. Oh. You know, it was. You know, again, I wanted these these dramatic units to be very self-contained and do it all in one scene. And um, I think there's only 60 words, or just under 60 words used in that scene. Um, and they go from a really functioning, on the surface of it, you know, happily married couple to no longer being husband and wife in under 60 words. So I challenge anyone in a writing class to, <laughs> to, to do an arc like that. Um, and it, 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 again, it relied a lot on the actors. It was a lot on the silences. You know, Samuel Beckett knew all about that, you know, that it's often the silences. And there's that huge pause before Eddie says to Jane, you know, um, <laughs> Elaine is going to... I've asked Elaine to go with me to America. And you can see his expression clouding, complicating. We, we wonder what, what is actually... Where's the sadness coming from? And then he writes that sentence, and then you realize the full weight of that sentence. And, and his face had to carry the freight of all that emotion, but with no, no words. Um, challenging to write, very challenging to, to perform. Um, James gave them a whole day for that scene. They, 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 so that was 10 hours of shooting for that scene. They did it over and over and over again. They, can't imagine how drained they were. And they were really emotional. And yeah. that wasn't really in the script. It, I mean, Anthony's not writing stage direction. You know, they start to weep. But I mean, Eddie really started to cry. I mean, he was crying. There's an over-the-shoulder shot. I don't you, you realize it, but he's there's just tears coming down because I think they had come together uh, enough that we obviously didn't you shoot that far enough into the schedule. They're quite a unit at that point. Um, and they just, they brought all that emotion. She had many takes where she was really, you know, and they just came with that level of emotion and that, that quite charged that mm. scene in a, in a mm. really beautiful way. I think it's a good lesson for aspiring writers, though. You can do a lot when not saying anything in a yeah. script, too. You, the actors, if, as long as the emotion's there, they will find a way to portray that, you know, even you know, beyond the director's aspirations as well, the writers. Mm. Let's talk a little about the director. So what did you both feel about, what did James uh, bring to your script? Or your Nothing. Story? Nothing? Absolutely. It was really all you yeah, and really Lisa. Lisa and I, but yeah, no, he's really. wonderful. We I'm shot just kidding. the film, too. He's, we he, shot the film. He was wonderful, absolutely. He, you know, he came from doing Man on Wire, so he was oh, yeah. much lauded. Everybody wanted him. You know, what project could lure him? Um, he had turned Man on Wire, which on paper probably seemed, you know, a, a kind of ordinary idea of a guy walking between two buildings on a wire, but he turned it into this really interesting examination of psychology of, of, of a man and his friendship um, and also made it a nail-biting thriller. And, and we yeah. thought if we could get this documentarian's eye for detail um, for his insight into psychology 
um, and get him to you know to to bring all that to our project, then you know he'd be great. So we were thrilled when he read it. He re- he responded pretty immediately. Yeah. I think, in his words, he said uh, that it surprised him, that he thought it would be yeah. just a straight biopic, a lot of science, and the emotionality of the thing. For him, it was about the emotion yeah. that came through, and and he and that was what he was ready for. I think um, he wanted. Yeah, and to he had also. I mean, he directed a, a few things with uh, just straight up narrative, where he's with actors. Um, he did something Red Riding, which was a, a series that was on um, television in, in Europe. Um, and also a picture with Clive Owen and Andrea Riceboro. It was 1964 Belfast that didn't have a lot of box office, but you could see really uh, solid performances in that. Um, and I think it was sort of the right step for him. It was just, you know, slightly, just a, slightly bigger than he had done before. But I think the thing I would say he really brought to it, you know, you're, you're so, in a way, uh, the pressure of a movie like this is that you're, they, these people are all alive. And the pressure of trying to represent them in such an incredibly complicated, messy relationship and life that they have. In fact, the, the kids are all adults, and they were all involved in the movie. And Stephen was on set, and Jane was on set at different times. And um, to have them sort of, sort of in a way, over your shoulder, it's quite a lot of pressure to be bringing forth some level of truth. Um, and so I think James is really great in that because he's, he is such a documentarian that he, he's quite focused on the veracity of something, something really holding a, a truth. Uh, so when you're writing a, screen, a screenplay, you're on your computer, your final draft, I assume. Uh, <laughs> how how cool was it for you to see like, some of the amazing cinematography? Like yeah. the way they turn your pictures. I, one of my favorite students scene was the sweater, when he saw the black hole through the sweater. Yeah. So how, is it, how do you feel when you see that translate to the screen? Like, wow, this is my idea, but look how they shot it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's you're great. You're always disappointed. No, no, Ben. <laughs> We looked to France for champagne and cinematographers, and you know Benoit is the Dom Perignon of uh, of cinematographers. He's, everyone should have French cinematographers. He, he comes into a room and goes, "I can't light this. This is shit." <laughs> well, maybe I could light it. Okay, give me a moment. You know, and then you know, and then he just turns it into something absolutely dazzling and beautiful and. Um, you know, absolutely love the man, so talented. Um, uh, just his touches, you know. The, we found that spiral staircase, and Jane runs up a spiral staircase. Oh, okay. But it's, you know, it's Benoit goes, yeah. I think we turn the camera. And, <laughs> and I, I, we were actually talking at NYU with students, and, uh, and they said, you know, what was that bullshit twisting camera <laughs> with the thing? And, Angry new NYU film students going. This is this is old fashioned crap, and you know. And I was going, really? There's, uh, but I find find that sort of lyrical. I love the fact the NY students are angry. I think <laughs> students should be angry. Um, they should find fault in the work of Because you guys know better. You know how to do it better. Um, but uh, you know, yeah. he's my age, fifty, and. Uh, and you know those touches I just thought were lyrical, and he really got again the emotion, the emotion, the emotion. How do we get? Yeah. How do we get the emotion? The emotion. He was always about the emotion. I mean, it <laughs> yeah. is really wonderful when you deal with it. He, he's not about the. I mean, he's quite technical, but he was all about the emotion, yeah. and that that really comes forward, you know, in the movie. I think. Well, the spinning scene where they were dancing by the water—that was yeah. amazingly shot. Yeah. Also fearful because he was staggering a little. Right on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which you is interesting. Yeah. Take him to the edge and pull him back. Yeah. 
well, I'm having too much fun, but let's, let's let you guys have some fun. So we have time for a couple of questions before we break. So make sure they're awesome. <laughs> no Apparently, there's a we have poster. an awesome one right there. There's a signed poster for, for anyone who asks a really good question. Yes, we have a signed poster. Whoever has the most awesome question, we can give you a signed <laughs> poster. Uh, we got a mic coming to you, sir. Wow, this is very professional, these screenings. When, when you finally got Jane to sign off on, on giving you rights to make the movie, you, you've already said that, that Stephen and Jane both were on set, but did they have any rights to what you actually made as far as the movie and how, what do they think about it uh, now that it's it was done? There was no question. I made it very clear to Jane from the beginning that she wouldn't have script approval. Um, and she respe- respected that. Um, she did have input. Um, I, I showed her drafts and her input was great. It was, all, it was restricted to detail. But she never tried to take out the more difficult parts of the script, the challenging stuff, the really sensitive stuff. Her book had been unflinching, I can tell you, and, um, and, and I told her that I wanted the movie to be unflinching, and she never tried to compromise the film. Um, and, and they finally both saw the film, and that was an incredible moment for us, one of, the, one of the most amazing in the whole process, was we had separate screenings times, for Stephen and, and, uh, and Jane. In Stephen's case, um, he watched the film, um, and when the lights came up at the end, he had, he had tears running down his face. He had had a profound experience um, watching the film, and his nurse wiped the tears away. And he almost instantly started showering us with gifts. And the most important of those for us was the gift of his computer voice. So the voice you hear in the, in the film is his own patented com- computer voice. Um, which is oddly quite different than we had approximated it, which obviously would be a fairly easy thing to do, but his voice is, is actually, no one else can have that voice of his, and it has a different rhythm. So we actually had to recut the picture just slightly because the rhythm is different uh, than when you have just a, a, a straight-up electronic voice. It's an, it's an American accent, but it has a Swedish bounce to it. Yeah, you do it very well. Um, look look what? what we made. <laughs> 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 There's a fitting end to our Q&A. Look what we made. Yeah. But I would also say we, we, we definitely felt a heavy ethical and moral you know, weight to try to, you know, if either one of them had ever sort of raised a hand and said, hey, I hate this, or this doesn't work, or that's not true, we would have obviously made those adjustments. And we did sort of in small ways all the way through. And then the company that was funding the movie, Stephen, you know, is internationally famous. So at any point, if he wanted to say, oh, this is bollocks or this is crap or something, that would have been quite, uh, you know, a difficult thing to deal with. So we, he became involved in, in prep and like that thesis signature when he's getting his doctorate, that's his, that's his actual thesis. And the medal around Eddie's neck is the medal from the, from the uh, queen and uh, many of the things that are being put when, he's, when they're packing up his house when he's moving out are his as well. But bravely, Stephen never asked to change anything in the movie either, yeah. um, which is a mark of the man. He did say when he read the script, it ends halfway through my life. Like he was like, <laughs> why don't you just keep it going? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, he wasn't only supposed to survive two years, so it's amazing. Yeah. No, the yeah. triumph of his will. Uh, okay, we have... We have a question here. We have a mic flying to you. 
Hi, yeah. Uh, given that the, the whole project is kind of your baby, will you ever worry about signing off uh, any sorts of creative control, whether it be for financial reasons, maybe to working title, or um, to a potential director? So maybe that you choose a director who you think, who you as a writer could get involved with a lot and have a say on how things are actually being translated from script to screen? Yeah, good question. Um, in our cases, we, we attached ourselves as producers to safeguard against that eventuality. We really wanted to be consulted, um, and we were. We were actively part of the decision-making process of all the heads of department, all the casting. And Lisa and I were there every day of the shoot. Well, actually, I missed a couple, but you were there every day, almost every hour of the every shoot. Day. And we weren't, um, you know, we didn't, um, you know... But get I th- too involved. Yeah, and I think some of that really is also, um, it helped us a lot that Anthony had, I, I gave him notes in that whole process, but he just kept working on the script and the script just kept getting better because we sort of had that time as opposed to, I mean, if Anthony had been somebody who said, oh, it's good enough and we'll just wait till we go to funding, you know, he was willing to do all that work and, and keep improving uh, the script. And so by the time she does finally give us the rights and, and agrees with us to go forward, uh, it's in such great shape, and we then also attached James, the director, prior to going out to financiers. So by having that much of a package, we were sort of able to pick and choose. There were several companies that wanted to make it because it's Stephen Hawking, and it's international, it's a wonderful script, um, and James was a viable director. So at that point, there were enough people willing to go forward that we had more power because we could say, you know, if... if we can't come to terms or whatever, we're going to make it over here. Um, and so it allowed us, and also working titles, just a, they're really reputable. They, they've made very pedigree films in London, and they are really filmmaker-friendly. So we knew that going in, so we didn't really have any issue that way. But you do. You, you want to butt heads. We, we certainly butted heads with James at times, and he would say the same, and that was good. There was a good friction in terms of all of us trying to make things better and improve things, and I think you usually end up with a better movie because of that. Uh, can you tell us about a special movie theater experience you might have had growing up as a child, going with family, seeing a movie that really impacted you? Uh, oh. Something interesting? Maybe going to one of the great UCSB classrooms and watch a movie? <laughs> wow. I remember seeing Jungle Book as a kid with my mom and my whole, all my siblings. That was really magical. I don't know. I, I think it's when you're young and you, you start to see movies as this world that opens up bigger than you can imagine. That, that's quite, I have quite a few memories of that. And that was, I think, why I went into it, really. Um, maybe Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars when Harrison Ford I mean, one of my, I guess my favourite line in all of cinema is Harrison Ford turns to Chewbacca and says punch it Chewie <laughs> <laughs> and then this incredible thing happens yeah, it's a brilliant they, line they jump it's the best line in cinema is right out there <laughs> punch it Chewie do you try to slip that into theory of everything? Can we? Any way we can say punch it, Chewie? With we should have had Stephen say punch it, Chewie. <laughs> <laughs> and then, that, then the most incredible thing happens: they jump to hyperspace. <laughs> and that's our parting wish to you all: may you all punch it, Chewie, and jump to hyperspace. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.